Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the beloved 1972 screwball comedy What's Up Doc, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill star in a madcap adventure fueled by misunderstandings and mistaken identities involving stolen jewels, top secret government documents, and a hotel convention for musicologists. The plot of this film is absolutely 100% pointless to explain because it's a screwball comedy, a genre which we will, of course, be explaining and analysing this episode. Um, absolutely delightful. I'd never seen this movie before. I was screaming with laughter from start to finish. Like, I cannot remember the last time I laughed so much at a movie. <laughs> yeah, I loved it too. I did not laugh nearly as much as you, I think. But I was watching this alone, lying in my bed with my laptop, trying to manage my bad back. So that's yeah. not really like an <laughs> optimal situation. But I thought it was great. I did not realize that this movie is quite explicitly a remake of Howard Hawks' 1938 yeah. film, yeah. Bringing Up Baby. It's not subtle that that's what's going on. But a remake in a good way. And it feels like it's, it simultaneously has very much the vibe of like that era like 1930s and 40s screwball while also being like visibly very 70s so it doesn't feel pastiche even though it is literally a pastiche i mean we're obviously as you said going to talk about this extensively and i was just like delighted by the fact that he was essentially remaking this movie we're going to be talking about bogdanovich a lot in this episode of course like we decided to do this because he died a couple of weeks ago I think the day before Sidney Poitier died. And um, I'm not particularly uh, like attached to Peter Bogdanovich at all. The way I have information about him basically is through Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This podcast series about his wife, Polly Platt, who was a production designer. She did the production design on this film, though they had separated by the time they were making this movie. And he doesn't come across great, I would say, in that series um not necessarily as like a total monster but definitely not as a great guy i mean he's a classic example of someone who's described as a character because he had a big personality very talented lots of cool anecdotes like lots of cool autobiographical anecdotes and also like did some stuff that was extremely fucked up which is sort of the classic old hollywood vintage personality really yes but part of why i wanted to do this episode and then next week we're going to do in the heat of the night and I'm much more attached to Sidney Poitier, so I was more affected by him dying. But I was really affected by both of them dying in such quick succession because they felt like two of the last really meaningful links to the golden age of Hollywood. So Bogdanovich is obviously making movies in the 70s, but he and Polly Platt were people who were really obsessed with like the 30s and 40s Hollywood cinema before it was necessarily fashionable to be in America. Like they were tracking down prints of stuff and watching it. Like Karina Longworth talks about this in that podcast series, which needless to say, I highly, highly recommend. And Bogdanovich managed to sort of like connive his way into interviewing tons of the like film director legends from that era. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, there was a fascinating detail in his, New York Times obituary, which of course was a very high quality obituary, which said like he was extremely well versed in classic Hollywood very, very early in his career, like when he was still in his 20s before he'd made any films. But um, through kind of all of the interviews he did with filmmakers as a kind of cultural critic, 
He met up with Orson Welles and Orson Welles, who at this point was like very down on his luck, wound up living in Peter Bogdanovich's garage or something in the 70s when Bogdanovich was at the top of his career. And then when Bogdanovich was down on his luck in the late 90s when his career was fucked up, he lived in Quentin Tarantino's garage. So it was like Tarantino, who's like also like an obsessive film nostalgia freak. It was like, wow, the the food chain here is fascinating. (laughs) Well, and I think a lot of what Bogdanovich did that was so valuable and meaningful in the long run was not his movies, though the three he made that are really famous, which are the three that I've seen, which is this film, The Last Picture Show, and um, Paper Moon. Like, those are great movies. They come in pretty quick succession in the, like, early mid-70s. And then he has a string of failures that don't really go anywhere. And he actually does a lot of acting later in his life that he initially trained as an actor, and then he sort of goes back to that later on. But he started out, as you mentioned, as a cultural critic. He wrote for the Saturday Evening Post and Kaiju Cinema. And then he worked as a young man at MoMA's film archives and was programming retrospectives and writing monographs to go along with them for Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock. I feel like what he was doing more recently, I mean, I think he did this throughout his life, but especially more recently was like really to do with like preserving Hollywood, classic Hollywood cinema and like promoting that cinema. Like he did so much stuff with Criterion. He's on the Blu-ray for Bringing Up Baby, I think, talking about the film on like a Zoom call that was recorded during the pandemic you know so I feel like he was talked about by film critics as a figure who was like constantly like he was really a scholar of classic Hollywood in a lot of ways almost more than a director in terms of like the whole scope of his life and so much of his life was dedicated to preserving and promoting that stuff and so I think that was part of why his death really affected me was that those people who even if they weren't alive in the 30s who really knew those great early directors are really all dying. And he was obviously one of the people who was most involved with those men and had such a perspective on them personally and obviously also just got the movies, which you can clearly see yeah. in this film. I mean, it's kind of the the same phenomenon we see unfolding in the really absurd kind of culture wars surrounding Martin Scorsese, who is the kind of the ultimate of this tribe of individuals and also just like a lovely person who just wants to preserve art and (laughs) we're continually embroiled in ridiculous debates about his like opinions on spider-man which are like not relevant but yeah this movie is just like this love letter to screwball comedies without being a film that's like trying to be from the 30s god it's it's so funny to give just like slightly more background on like what happens in the movie as i said we will not attempt to explain what happens in detail. But um, the two kind of protagonists, Barbara Streisand's character is this young woman who, she's not exactly a con artist, but she kind of takes life as it comes and is very fast talking and chaotic and just does whatever she wants. And then the other guy is this like extremely nerdy, socially awkward, dreamy professor played by Ryan O'Neill. And he has a very prudish fiance, hilariously played by the wonderful Madeline Kahn. And these three people are all going to the same hotel. Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill both have the same tartan 
shoulder bag. And there are two other individuals who also have the same tartan shoulder bag. So there are four identical bags in total, one of which has jewels, the other one of which has Barbara Streisand's clothes. Then there's one with secret documents. And there is one that is full of the musicologist guy's uh, rock collection, which are like musical rocks. There's a lot of academia humor in this because like he's a musical rock expert. And it's just kind of like a, a game of find the lady where there's these four bags that are like constantly changing hands in increasingly absurd ways while all these people are like trying to get the same bag and Barbara Streisand is trying to sabotage Ryan O'Neill's relationship and then they all have to go to like a party full of academic musicologists and it's very funny and there's also an extensive and very famous car chase which takes place over the hills of San Francisco a great location for a car chase yeah so to talk about the sort of pre-production and interproduction of the film we should say, first of all, that the credited screenwriters on this film are um, Buck Henry, who wrote The Graduate, and Robert Benton and David Newman, who wrote Bonnie and Clyde, which is very funny to me because in preparation for next week's episode, I am reading Mark Harris's great book, Pictures at a Revolution, which is all about the Best Picture nominees of 1968, two of which are The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. So it's all about the birth of the new Hollywood, and it is extremely amusing to me to think of all of these people writing this film i mean also the fact that they they wrote it in like three weeks <laughs> yes <laughs> obviously bogdanovich had like conceptualized this as a remake of bringing up baby he didn't pitch it that way at the time to like public audiences most of whom would not have seen that film but he has explicitly said that that it was. And apparently, according to an article in the New York Times from 2020, sort of conversation between Tony Scott and Manola Dargis, I think Manola Dargis says Bogdanovich even consulted with Howard Hawks, who directed Bringing Up Baby, who was concerned that What's Up Doc didn't have any animals. There's no dinosaur, no leopard, no dog, as in baby, which seems like a peculiar thing to fix on, which I just found so funny that like, Peter Bogdanovich is like, Going over to Howard Hawks being like, here's the script for the movie I'm going to make based on one of your best movies. And Howard Hawks is like, um, there's no leopard in it. So like, I don't really know. Yeah, like 18 year old Howard Hawks. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not like an exact beat for beat remake of Bringing Up Baby as this suggests. Like there's all this screwball stuff with I mean, the animals the thing in that, that by film. far is the most similar is the academic man character. Gavia. This whole film is so similar. No, no, I mean, it's all... <laughs> I, I have seen Bringing Up Baby, I'm sure, more than once. But, like, just the the performance that Ryan O'Neill is giving as this very specific type of, like, nerd. But it's the absent professor nerd, which I feel like is quite absent from our current comedic cast. Well, but also then you have the female lead, who is this zany comic slash oh, cosmic yeah. force who is going after him and he's just like I am engaged to this woman who is not interested in sex. I mean she is a little bit in this movie but what's going on here? I'm very confused. In both movies the female lead persists in calling the male lead by the wrong name. In um, Bringing Up Baby Cary Grant has lost his bone. They keep running around <laughs> yes. saying he's lost his bone, which is obviously a euphemism. And he's a paleontologist. In this one, Ryan O'Neill is a musicologist, but his study is of prehistoric igneous rocks, so it's not far off. And then he loses those at some point. Um, there is a scene where Barbara Streisand 
rips the back of his coat open that is basically yeah. shot for shot exactly the same. But like above all, it's just the like speed and tone of the film, right? Which I mean, this is generally considered the last great screwball comedy, which is an assessment I would agree with. Yeah. Obviously, there have been many great romantic comedies since, some of which have a sort of like acerbic tone, but nothing is like this. And it's obviously because he studied that movie and other films like it so closely. There's a scene where one of the other guys trying to find one of these traveling cases that you mentioned goes in and tells Madeline Kahn that like there's a snake in her room and she completely freaks out, which is basically a recreation of a scene from the Lady Eve. Like there's just so oh, much stuff. I was trying to remember which movie it is where there was like the snake yeah. joke. <laughs> yep. Which obviously, again, a euphemism. There's just so much stuff packed into this film, which is just delicious to watch. On top of this like sort of madcap farce physical humor that is kind of referencing like the Looney Tunes, like it's called What's Up Doc, right? But it's real people. So it's this, like, which they can do because it's stuff, all filmed you know? by Warner Brothers. So I was like, oh, interesting. Okay, the Warner Brothers logo is coming up at the start. That's why they're allowed to, to call it What's yeah. Up Doc. Um, also, um, another great detail is obviously that Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand were dating at this point. So you've got these two people who've already got like great chemistry bouncing off each other. I mean, I watched Streisand in Funny Girl, which is also a musical romantic comedy, but like a bit more serious than this a few weeks ago. And it's just like, she's delightful. I mean, just the kind of the aggressive humor she has is, oh, I love her. <laughs> well, I think they were like on the rocks at some point making this. Like, I there mean, was definitely something going doesn't on. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, Ryan O'Neill, famously a deeply horrible person. He dated we like every, every hot woman in the 70s and they all left him. So, you know. And was like giving his children cocaine when they were 12. Like there's a lot of stuff about dark. him that is not very great. Dark. He's great in this movie. Very handsome and funny and charming. And he was one of the big, I mean, they were both among the biggest stars, you know, in Hollywood at this time. I don't know how he got involved. Um, he obviously went on to do Paper Moon with his daughter Tatum with Peter Bogdanovich a couple of years later. But Apparently, Barbara Streisand saw the last picture show and turned to a studio executive and said, I want him, meaning Peter Bogdanovich. And so that was how she was attached to the movie. And they like submitted a script to Bogdanovich and he was, I don't know what the script was, but whatever it was, he didn't like it. And he was like, I want to do a screwball comedy like Bringing Up Baby with Barbara, a square professor and a daffy dame who breaks him down and live happily ever after, which like, great. So the studio okays it, and Streisand did not enjoy herself making this film. There's some interesting stuff about this on the You Must Remember This series. She and Polly Platt got along, which I think was part of how she wound up doing the movie and made it work. So a big part of the episode where this movie is discussed talks about how she couldn't get into the art director's guild at this point. Because there were no women in it. And they let her in after the, the last picture show. And she basically was like driving around America trying to find a city in which to set this film. And it originally was going to be in Chicago. And she was like, I just don't think that's right. And she was the one who suggested San Francisco, which 
so much of the movie's greatness comes from the fact that it's set in San Francisco, that huge car chase up and down the hills of San Francisco. The personality comes from that setting. I think she found the hotel where they did some of the shooting in. I mean, she'd found all the locations, but like when she initially was doing the scouting, like what city it should be, and she found one of those hotels. But my memory of the podcast is that once she sort of really separates from Bogdanovich, that's when she becomes more powerful and influential in her own right, as you would expect, because she's not just like, oh, Peter's wife who does the art directing on his films. But she clearly was a really magnetic person. I mean, as I said, that podcast is fascinating. As evidenced by the fact that she and Barbara got along because Barbara Streisand could be difficult. Peak Dave at this point. I like there was like a little interview that we found with uh, Bogdanovich kind of where he talks about this movie on the Cinephilia website. And he's kind of talking about how she had these like movie star nails and this like really impressive manicure that she refused to get rid of. And he's like, you're meant to be like this penniless young women so he was like constantly making her hold props for the entire film to try and like hide her manicure i thought this little anecdote was just such a perfect illustration of like how power gets negotiated between the various people involved in making a film right because it doesn't seem like this was like a horrible situation or anything and i think part of her i mean it's your it's your classic hollywood people management Yeah, she just didn't think the movie was funny, which is absolutely hilarious in retrospect. Like, I don't... Yeah, considering the fact that, I mean, A, the film's funny, B, she's funny, and C, she has, like, amazing comedic instincts, so it's like, what's not clicking? What's not clicking, Barbara? (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, the stuff that she has directed and tended to be incensed, like, she, as you say, has more of a diva thing going on, and she likes to have some melodrama, and this is, like, so fast and screwball. E, right? Which I don't think is her natural mode. But this quote from Bogdanovich, like, he's just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, she just won't do the thing. And she clearly is like, well, I'm not going to do the thing. And like, they're kind of like bickering over it. And then he's like, but you know, obviously she did what I wanted with the performance. So like, whatever, it's fine. Like, it's just all about negotiation, right? But apparently she's still, I mean, as of whatever article I was reading, like, years later still in interviews was like she just doesn't think it's a good movie which i amazing i I also really respect that she still says that it's like she's not like oh i'm gonna say it's good now it's like no you just don't like it and you're allowed to say that (laughs) when you're barbara (laughs) also like the all the competing narratives around this so like peter bogdanovich says that the movie was the most fun of any any picture i've ever made it was absolute heaven from beginning to end I didn't give a damn if we ever made the picture, an enviable position to be in. And Polly Platt, like, they, she had separated from her husband, who was Peter Bogdanovich, and, like, he had an affair with Sybil Shepard making The Last Picture Show, which is the background of that. And, like, she was very sad making this movie and was, like, drinking a lot and later had a really serious alcoholism problem. And Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill are, like, having whatever romantic problems they're having, and she's annoyed that, you know... It's not funny enough or whatever. But like we see all these pictures and she and Bogdanovich are clearly flirting with each other. And so like all of this stuff is going on, right? And everybody's having their own experience. And part of what that podcast about Polly Platt is all about is really like demystifying the idea of auteur theory, right? Because this woman made such massive contributions to these films that we think of as Peter Bogdanovich's films. And... I feel like the fact that everyone kind of has a different memory of making it also reflects the fact that, like, they all contributed their part and remember the experience being very different. And that's just a 
microcosm of human life. But the finished product, obviously, is really superb. I mean, I think part of what is so brilliant about it, you mentioned that there are these cases that everyone is switching around to the point where, like, like you you can't keep track no, of where they are. There's absolutely no right? way of like, knowing no. what's happening, which is kind of one of the great things about this type of movie. Like, you don't need to know. I was just kind of thinking, like, the actual writers obviously have to know. So the amount of charts they must have had pinned to their walls to keep track of all this stuff, like, unbelievable. <laughs> well, initially there were only two cases. And then they brought in Buck Henry to do a rewrite. And he said... You're going to hate me, but I don't think it's complicated enough. You need another suitcase. <laughs> and he was correct. <laughs> yep. So then they add the suitcase with the top secret papers, which is a riff on the Pentagon Papers. And they hire this actor, Michael Murray, who, if people have seen the Altman film Nashville, he plays like a scuzzy politician. He plays like dude. businessman and everything. He's like your yeah. generic white man. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything except Nashville, but I've seen that movie so many times that his face is like burned into my brain. And so when he showed up in this, I was like, it's the guy from Nashville. And I don't think I've he seen has him like, in one like line 50 of middling quality films because he does like loads of them as like a businessman. Yeah. <laughs> and he just sort of like runs around the hotel in this. And so you have this sort of like f- almost frame story or like background of these like white dudes just like in suits. Just, like, running around trying to find this suitcase. And this, like, incredibly incompetent spy who's just this slapstick figure who's trying to find the top secret files and is just, like, unbelievably bad at trailing someone and has this huge bag of golf clubs to try and make himself look like a golfer is just, like, so absurd. (laughs) Which is never really explained. No. Why anyone would be running through San Francisco with a bag of golf clubs, (laughs) I have no idea. And then... Sort of on top of that is the main plot. I'm using finger quotes because to describe it as a plot would is really kind of generous of this romance or love triangle, I suppose, between these three characters, which sort of starts off in an absurd place and then escalates <laughs> in its absurdity. Yeah. I mean, I think also that's along. like one of the big differences between a lot of the specifically like screwball comedies, like classic ones and modern rom coms is the focus on actual romance and kind of emotion is like completely skewed because this film doesn't have like a traditional romantic buildup, nor does it require one. The characters are not behaving like any human being from Earth. And like the the way Barbara is pursuing Ryan is like beyond belief. And it completely works because you're living in comedy land. Whereas a contemporary rom-com has a bit more traditional romantic tension. Well, I think this is a really interesting... I I found this movie obviously both completely delightful, but also really fascinating as someone who's like intellectually interested in this genre, because I think the current... Like, movies that are currently made in this genre both borrow tropes, whether consciously or not, from the really old movies, and then there's like a second set of tropes that have developed that often have actually more retrograde gender roles than the earlier movies, which is something that we've talked about before. But lots of stuff about marriage and weddings and, like, traditional things that, like, women are supposed to want is totally a, like, now or, like, the past 30 years thing, right? 
I mean, there's also, like you were saying about sort of the, the thing about more recent ones being more retrograde. It's like the rom-coms of like the 30s and 40s, when they were being intentionally rebellious, they were having fun with it. They were like, we're going to like break some boundaries, but in like a way that's just really silly and entertaining. Whereas when you get modern rom-coms that are trying to go against the grain and do something subversive, it automatically makes them more serious. They're the serious rom-coms that are like dealing with an issue, which is not entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I think it could work sometimes. I always reference Obvious Child, which is obviously like partially about abortion as my favorite rom-com of the past 10 years or so. Part of that movie is about a serious topic. But in the 30s, when the genre really gets going, like women are in this kind of weird social position in America, which is that the depression is happening and no one has any money. And so like women have to try to work if they can get work. But that makes men anxious, but we haven't hit World War II yet where like all the men are gone. Yeah. So women just have to work the jobs, right? And also like the tone of any comedy in the depression is so intense compared to now. And you can really see like where people were at psychologically when you watch these comedies from like 1930 to 1935, where the way people are behaving, like the way plots are structured are so hysterical and often like based around some like absurd financial scheme because that's like what was on everyone's minds and there's a lot going on yeah i mean you're talking about like pre-code stuff yeah the rom-com really gets started in the second half yeah because bringing up babies like 38 or something yes 1934 is when um it happened one night comes out and that's really the first Mm -hmm. one in like the what we think of as a romantic comedy that's the first one and then keeps going through the 40s. But they're still really obsessed with money, although the second half of the 30s, the depression wasn't quite as bad for the most part. And when they're doing interesting things with those female characters, they're I'm talking about the good ones. Obviously, there are plenty of bad movies that just haven't survived as well. There's kind of a like pushback, as you say, against the like dominant social structures. And I think a lot of those movies are really emotionally persuasive, you have to just believe that people fall in love yeah. in three days. I mean, there's also fine, like right? the power of Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn is like carrying yes. <laughs> a lot of these. But it's interesting to compare something like Bringing Up Baby, which is the ultimate screwball, right? In the sense that everyone in the movie is insane. No one behaves like a normal person in any way. And it is so fast with something like Holiday, which comes out the same year, also stars her and Cary Grant. And is very funny and charming, but is quite melancholy and does not have the same fast-paced thing Mm -hmm. going on. And those people actually seem like real human beings. And, like, it's way more emotionally real than bringing up Baby, which is so zany. But I do think... I I love this movie, but I don't think it's as good as bringing up Baby, which, like, how is that... You're not... It's not possible to be, right? And I think that when you're modeling something on a movie that's that great so closely, like, it does invite comparison. And... I think Streisand is amazing in this film. She's obviously just a total force of nature as a performer. And they do give her a backstory, which is that like her father really cares a lot about her having a college degree and she cannot manage to stay in college. So she's been like bouncing around from place to place. And so she has all this like random knowledge in her head about all these different subjects, but it's incomplete because she'll do like, one year at this college studying geography and one year doing something else. I mean, this is a movie about Barbara Streisand having ADHD. Yeah. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Slash like sleeping around too much, I think probably (laughs) and getting kicked out of school. 
But there is something about her character that, like, you have to just be like, well, this is just, she's just chaos, right? She really doesn't make sense as, like, a human being. And the performance is so delightful that it doesn't really matter. But I think, by contrast, the Hepburn performance in Bringing Up Baby, like, she's also playing a total lunatic. But there's more in that film that makes you understand what is going on with her where you're like, oh, I get what's happening. It's that she's a fucking rich girl. Like, she is so <laughs> unbelievably rich and bringing up baby that she just sees Cary Grant and is like, I must have him. You see, this is the explanation for why Dakota Johnson is the way she is. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Except that Catherine Hepburn in this movie is charming and Dakota Johnson, despite what many people on Twitter <laughs> seem to believe, is not. But again, it's not that like, Hepburn and bringing up baby is like a deeply sophisticated psychological portrait or something. There's just enough of her. Like you see her with her family. You see her interacting with like <laughs> the like psychologist who she initially charms at the bar and they wind up like harassing him at his house in the middle of the night. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, leave me alone. <laughs> that you get more of a sense of her like in her environment and how she functions in society. And you understand how she both, is kind of just maddening to people, but how she gets away with it too, right? Because everything just rolls off of her like water off of a duck's back. And she can be so charming when she, I mean, it's not when she wants to be, she just is behaving the same all the time. But before people have kind of realized that she can be so impossible, they're sucked in by her. And she's so rich that like her aunt, I think, is the one with the house in Connecticut where this movie takes place is also kind of nuts because they're all just these like loony, waspy, rich people, right? And that context is missing from this because the class stuff doesn't survive past the 40s. No, I mean, that's not like relevant to a story in the 70s. I mean, it to me, truly does not matter that we don't really know anything about Barbara's character. I mean, the whole point of these movies is they go so fast that you're just like caught up in this stream of chaos and jokes. And from like the first like couple of minutes of her introduction, you get such a clear understanding of the idea that we are just experiencing one episode in the life of someone who is just like unbelievably just like goes with the flow and redirects the flow to her own whims. Like her introduction is basically like she is a Looney Tunes cartoon, that trope where someone smells the waft of like the pie when they're walking past a pie shop and like decides to steal the pie. She sees a guy in like a pizza parlor making a pizza and then she like sees the pizza delivery guy and just like stalks the pizza delivery guy and ends up in this hotel where the other three people with the identical bags are. And then you see her pull a minor league scam to steal a sandwich from room service by getting ordered to an empty room. And I'm like, this woman's a genius. And then she gets embroiled in this whole thing with the bags But she is the person who's like directing all of this because once she arrives at the hotel, she decides that her new mission is just going to be like to fuck with Ryan O'Neill because she thinks he's hot and she finds him funny and clearly this man's fiance's crap. So she gate crashes his academic conference, which is hilarious. There's a lot of performances going on in this, but like by and large, they're all kind of functioning on the same register. And then they have Randy Quaid as Ryan O'Neill's academic rival. And he is playing like an SNL (laughs) sketch character who's this appalling musicology professor who's constantly like flipping his hair. And he has an accent from what I can only describe as every country in Europe. (laughs) Oh, I 
I loved him. I loved him. He was great. I think he is definitely playing a German man and that there is some major post-Nazi stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, his accent is German-centric, but he is, like, meandering. I think towards the end, he's swearing in, like, fake Russian. I'm not saying it's a good accent, no. to be and clear. and it doesn't it's need to be at all. But I think he's definitely supposed to be playing a, like, bad German dude in this sort of cartoonish, we still hate the Germans, right? Like, here's one for you to hate. And then you've also got this delightful character, the guy who is going to give away a bunch of money to a musicologist. He's like the guy who gives away the grants. So he's got this little coterie of academics and art people and is instantly charmed by Barbara Streisand who gatecashes a party and it's just like, I love this. Delightful, wonderful role for him. I saw some tweet the other day, or maybe I was reading a Letterboxd review of something that I watched some 70s movie, I think it was The French Connection, and I think it was a Letterboxd review that was like, I know there are, like, different standards for men and women, but it was really great when every man in a movie just looked had a face that looked like a shoe. <laughs> and, like, they, we should really bring that back. I'm sorry that I'm quoting without citation. I don't remember who this was. But, obviously, Ryan O'Neill is classic hunk. Like, very good looking. And I also thought, like, while watching this movie, I was like, this is what Ryan Reynolds wishes he was doing when he's doing, like, comedy performances. Because, like, there's a slight resemblance, um, especially with the little fake glasses. I'm sure I've seen a movie where Ryan Reynolds wears fake glasses, but it's like, Reynolds is not up to par. Man's a cardboard box. Well, Ryan Reynolds is the sort of man that Hollywood executives think that women like, but actually that men like, like my father. My father loves Ryan Reynolds. And I'm like, I'm very happy for you, but um, no thank you. But... Every other man in this movie has a face that looks like a shoe, except for Ryan O'Neill. And like, we just don't have those guys anymore. And I think we should bring them back. And also like the hair textures people were permitted to have during that era have not been seen before or since. I don't know what they were putting in the hairspray, but I can only assume it's like plutonium. (laughs) Well, and a lot of these guys are like, attractive in some way not in this movie yeah. i should say Among i mean this movie is not about being attractive that is not the goal of this film <laughs> but like some of the guys the french connection are kind of attractive they just look like normal yeah. and like yeah. bad in the film which we just don't permit actors to do that anymore which is why we're fucking stuck with ryan reynolds i know it's so fucking depressing i hate it so much People are going to look back at this era of film and be like, why does everyone's face not move? And why does everyone have like 30 pounds of muscle that they would absolutely not have in like, real life? Like, stop, yep. stop face tuning. Yeah. But anyway, the reason that I got onto this was that this actor who plays the grant giver, which is another plot point that is taken from bringing a baby. Mm-hmm. He just has this like nerd's face. I don't know how to describe it. It just looks perfect. He's got a little gap between his teeth. And he is very funny playing someone who is clearly not in any way like malicious or nefarious, but is very rich <laughs> and is kind of used to people sucking up to him and cannot really cope when things start to go bad in a way that is quite funny, but also in an amusing way can like see the virtues of both the women in the movie in a way that Brian O'Neill is kind of incapable of doing. I mean, I was thinking that if this was a film from the 40s, that would be the queer-coded character. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yep. But it's 1972, so there's no one. <laughs> but I find... We should need to talk about Madeline Kahn, who obviously... Hilarious. And she's you know. she's also like, this is a real costume role, because like for Barbara, they've, I think, intentionally 
downplayed her as a costume character like she's basically wearing like an extremely normal outfit for half of it and then has like a formal suit for when she does the evening events she looks great but like it's not a costume role whereas Madeline Kahn is very much a costume role she has this sort of like padded dressing gown situation going on to make herself look as much of a sort of like prissy grandmother as possible I mean she's probably like 25 30 in this movie and on top of her normal natural beautiful red hair she has like an enormous red wig which is like really great and fake looking and because it's like 1972 is like slightly outdated because it's like a 60s wig and it's great it's great yeah the wig thing just killed me because she does have this gorgeous hair. So it's like, And for the why? first section of the movie, you're like, man, they've really, they've really put Madeline Cannon in a wig here. And then like she takes the wig off when she goes to bed <laughs> yeah. and her normal hair is underneath and it's like incredible. <laughs> it's so funny. But the fact that she is so good in the movie helps so much because that role is could be quite thankless and I don't think it's written amazingly, frankly, but she is just like such an inherently hilarious performer that she pulls it off because she's basically playing the shrew right which yeah when my friend and i were watching it my friend was like i really hope this film is kind enough to treat her well and give her a happy ending because like you don't want someone to just be like fully the shrew for the whole film and it's like she does get a nice ending which is fortunate right with this rich man who again i find it really interesting i hadn't really thought about before we were talking about it but like they just kind of pair them together sort of off screen almost but it works because like the whole thing of Madeline Kahn's character is like she wants a guy to manage and it's like the perfect person to manage is like a rich guy who just goes to a lot of fun meetings and she's like excellent I can be a society wife whereas the other guy is like a rock obsessed musicologist so you know (laughs) not ideal but he clearly is like quite shaken with her and he also I mean of course Barbara Streisand is completely gorgeous and charming but he immediately is just like oh this is this is great i love talking to this woman and not in like a gross way yeah actually, he's like he's just like thrilled thing. and really wants a really fun exciting woman to come to his party right which i think most movies would have him like hitting on her in a gross way or have it just be generally kind of like lecherous and it's obviously the fact that she's a gorgeous woman is why he's interested in talking to her but he just feels like genuinely just like so thrilled to be talking to this lady. And meanwhile, Ryan O'Neill is just like so distressed that Barbara Streisand has crashed the party and that she's paying attention to him. And obviously in real life, if this happened and like some random woman started stalking you and like your fiance was upstairs, that would be distressing. Like you wouldn't want that to happen. But in the logic of movies, it's like, look, Barbara Streisand really wants to spend time with you. Like you kind of just <laughs> got to take that one. Like that seems not terrible as a like outcome, but the whole logic of that character is backwards, right? Like he just wants the wrong thing all the time and can't accept what's happening to him, which is exactly the same as Cary Grant in bringing a baby, which is obviously partly like, I don't know. I think it's more explicitly about masculine control and bringing up baby. And in this, the character is more just like so totally confused about everything that he just can't really. This film is like not going for any serious themes. No. It's like, what if we had a 15 minute car chase up and down some hills? Well, we should talk about the car chase. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I instantly you think of Buster Keaton here. I mean, this movie has uh, two men walking across the street carrying a pane of glass gag, which is hysterically funny. 
the car chase goes on for ages and um Bogdanovich did in fact make like a documentary about Buster Keaton in 2018 like it's a very very clear influence but there's just like a great little section of this cinephilia interview with Bogdanovich where he kind of explains the rationale behind the best gags in this movie it's sort of like classic comedy but always works and I was as I said screaming with laughter at some parts but um he says the comedy in whatsapp doc works on this principle of threes you set up something with a laugh you get another laugh with it and then you top it there's a scene where there are cars all making a u-turn and they each smash into this volkswagen bus which is parked along the curb each time it gets a bigger laugh the topper is when the guy who obviously owns the bus runs out from his house opens the door of the thing and the whole bus falls over into the street and that's the big laugh and it's like the whole movie is full of these sort of cascading jokes and you can really see sort of like this period leading into the mel brooks zone that's like immediately after this and then you get shit like airplane but it's like the volume of jokes you get in movies, in comedy movies of this period, it's like you do not get quantitatively the same number of jokes in like contemporary comedies, I don't think. Well, it's the Tina Fey school, right? Of Throw them all in. Yeah, like, obviously, there are issues with Tina Fey's output, um, but I really love the stuff that she has made or produced on television, obviously with some reservations. And a lot of that is that the joke density is just like so unbelievably high. It has a screwball feel to it, right? Because it's just like bang, 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 bang. And you're not going to catch all of it on the first watch. And that is totally different from something like a Judd Apatow movie where this ethos seems to be just like, well, let's just stick a camera up and then like people will just be funny in front of it. And I guess we'll have some footage and then we'll cut it together later, right? And if you cast really funny people, like, you will get some stuff that's very funny, but it's not a gonna be a good movie because <laughs> that's not writing. It's just, like, stuff happening. I do think we're kind of swinging, like, we've swung away from that style of just, like, whatever, man, we'll just sort of fuck around. But certainly... The dominant mode is not like this, and like film comedies are struggling in general. And the comedies on TV that tend to do well with critics are the ones that aren't actually comedies. <laughs> so, but like it's always setting in Philadelphia is like this too, right? With the just like so much happening, yeah. and but you like don't quite catch it all. And like that's the kind of comedy I, I like the most when I'm looking for something that's just like pure comedy is when it's just like really really fast and the rule of three thing is so true especially with the slapstick stuff in this movie which is something that is a bit different from the like classic screwballs they don't have as much of that or they're bringing up baby probably has the most and it's really expertly done and the pane of glass thing like the number of times that glass doesn't break and then when it finally (laughs) does it's so perfect and you're just like oh my god i was really laughing at that and the sort of withholding of something and then giving it to you as the audience as like the gag finally being i mean the number of just jokes they were able to film in a single set that was like a corridor and then a single hotel room that had just been like slightly redressed to be four or five other hotel rooms. I was like, wow, they've really budgeted this very well to just have jokes where it's like one man opening a hotel room door and then closing it because he sees someone on the other side of the corridor ready to come out. That's just like that gag happening like 20 times. <laughs> this is the movie I think that got Polly Platt into the art designers guild. I don't remember the exact timeline, whether it was this or, I mean, 
Last Picture Show got nominated for like a zillion Oscars, so it may have been off the back of that. But the production design of this movie is incredible. And it's not all flashy, although the rich guy's house is, which gets like destroyed, (laughs) is really great. But a lot of it is what you're describing, which is like really creatively and economically using space. And then stuff like scouting, which like using all of those, like the right locations in terms of like hills and streets in San Francisco for the car chase, which used up a huge amount of the budget, as you would imagine. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where like you might not pay attention to it necessarily because it's not something like a big historical epic where like clearly the production design has been meticulously done and cost a lot. And like they've recreated some castle from like 1500, but it adds so much to the movie and like just the hotel itself feels like such a real place and you're sort of transported one of the other like differences is with the era of bringing up baby is like in that era you'd have like a really beautiful hotel and in this it is really just it's a hotel like it's it's definitely a hotel (laughs) (laughs) yes and the costumes too like that trench coat that streisand wears throughout most of the movie was uh, Polly Platt's trench coat and she really liked the trench coat so they like bought three more of them and had her wear it throughout the film and it's a really nice trench coat but it's not as you said it's not like a big fancy dress like Streisand would wear in many other movies that she made where that was called for and she has always been very meticulous about what she wears and everything and is kind of in charge of it but clearly understood that like despite her insistence on her nails being long that the character should be dressed in stuff that like was not really that fancy and so she's not so the movie is not particularly luxurious which is as you say completely different from those older movies but it is so funny like that's why you're watching it it's interesting in the context of like the new hollywood and the 70s right because this is not a movie that often in my experience gets discussed in that context i mean it's very beloved like people really love this movie but it falls into an interesting spot because it's not something like clute or the godfather that are like hardcore serious art movie and it's not trash which is the other kind of movie that got made in the 70s it's a very unusual kind of thing high quality polished nonsense yeah and, like, we talked about when we did Clue, that, like, the first half of the 70s in American cinema, the number of films that were really seriously about women were, like, basically nil. And that Clute is an exception to that rule. And this is clearly an exception also, not in the sense that it's, like, a serious, in quote, like, exploration of women's issues, but, like, obviously, there's, like, a female lead. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, a star vehicle for Barbara, intentionally. yeah. And I think that that's important to include that in that list too, right? So I think it's very tempting to think about everything that happened in the 70s in American cinema as like the Pacula stuff or the Coppola stuff. But this was the second highest grossing movie at the box office this year, I think. Like it made a fuck ton of money. Obviously it was very popular. And if these people weren't famous before this, which they were, they were really famous after. I mean, O'Neill was huge in the late 70s. So... That's interesting in that context, too. And nice that it's also good. <laughs> also in the context of O'Neill, who actually broke through the year before, I think, in Love Story. I assume you got the joke of the last line. Of yes, this I have never seen Love Story, but I'm aware of the line. <laughs> so the last line of this movie is 
Barbara saying to Ryan O'Neill, love means never having to say you're sorry, which is the famous line from Love Story, which I have never seen. I also didn't realize it was him. Like I knew the line, but I didn't realize it was literally him. And it's like, you do that movie and then the next year you do a movie that like absolutely mocks the iconic romantic line from this very serious romantic drama. Because he says in response to her, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then they kiss and then the movie is over. Which is correct. Because like, she does need to say she's sorry for literally everything she ever does. (laughs) Right. And it is so fascinating, again, placing this film in the context of its cultural moment. The sort of anarchism extends to how it's engaging with, with pop culture, right? Because of course Bogdanovich and the screenwriters who have written stuff like Bonnie and Clyde would fucking hate Love Story, which I've never seen, but by all accounts is garbage. And they've made this zany, unsentimental romance movie. And so for it to end on that sort of stinger, I think is so, so, so perfect. Love it. We highly recommend, yes. needless to say. <laughs> and and join us next week for In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier. Yes. And as I said, I'm like a quarter of the way through this book by Mark Harris about that little collection of films including that one and guess who's coming to dinner which came out the same year and it is so good so far so i will be so ready with facts (laughs) trivia yeah i'm not reading that book i read one of his previous books as we mentioned in an earlier podcast his 1940s book but i am not reading that book in a week i have other tasks oh no i (laughs) you can inform me You should read it at some point, and I recommend it to all listeners. I'm sure I will talk about it more next week because it's really good, but um, I would not expect you to read it in a week. It's, uh, that's why I'm doing that, because I will, again, inform you and the listeners. But yeah, I think that episode will be great, and um, I hope that everyone enjoyed this one. Great fun to watch and talk about. If you would like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We will either have just put up an episode where we answered a bunch of questions from listeners or that will be coming very shortly so you can listen to that there and you as always you can also request a movie for us to talk about if you so desire we also would greatly appreciate uh rating a review on itunes five star review especially helps with podcast visibility and gavia where can our writers find you and your work online you can find my writing on the Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.